When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code GLOW. Hello, it's Graham. Welcome to a classic big interview. Today, join me. We're going back to season 2015-2016. This is what I had to say about it back then. I knew exactly how much I was going to like Michael O'Neill, the Northern Ireland manager. And when I found out that he'd bought tickets for him and his family to sit behind the goal at the Barca Atletico Madrid Champions League quarterfinal first leg. That's proper football fandom that is my impression was confirmed uh, when we began to talk and we shared memories of sports nights sitting up late praying for there to be football on and the groan when the horse jumping came on from Wembley except for the puissance I love the puissance Michael sat there in Edinburgh having happily rescheduled the interview because I'd been <clears throat> somewhat delayed by an airplane and we talked about everything the genius and also the dinosaur nature of Jim McLean Listen to him talking about his view on Montevideo and Luis Suarez and the biting incidents. Snow Patrol, world title boxing, the way in which leading Northern Ireland figures rallied round him, rallied round the other boys in green. This is a bright, clever, football smart man, as passionate about the game as you and I, well worth your time. You'll never beat those Irish either. Listen on. This is the big interview, so I won't be embarrassed if you tell me not to be silly. But whether it was deliberate or not, were there stages in your career where you could have, had, you could have done with somebody doing exactly that to you? Because, you know, you were an exceptionally talented footballer, mm. and I'm not supposing I've seen you say, mm, maybe should have done more, mm. for whatever reason. Was, were you using something that you'd learned from, or is it, are these things strands completely separate in, in what you took from your own career and life and choices to, to what you were saying as a, as a manager, as a, as a man-manager. 
is there a connection or is it simply you doing what needed to be done and it had nothing to do with your personal experience? No, I think it does. It goes go back to, to my playing career. I, I do feel and I have that sense of underachievement as a player. Uh, there's no doubt about that. I, I always felt, you know, to play so young for your country, you know, I played at 18 and then to your career to be basically a first team player from that age and, and the career that I had I, I felt that had I been at times better managed, man managed I would have got more out of my career. Part of that's my fault as well, I maybe didn't manage the situation well with the managers either, so I always look at it, before I go into that situation of potential confrontation with a player, I think you have to sit back and say Right, how is it from his angle? What is he looking at from his angle? What is going on in his head? Because, you know, I can't just always come in and go, well, he's not doing this, he's not, because he doesn't do this, he should do that. You know, there has to be reasons behind that from his angle. And, and I always look back at my own career and I think that, yeah, had I been maybe handled differently, I was probably quite insecure as a player. I probably need more reassurance than, than some other players. I think at times I, 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 I didn't get that. I think um, also if I had a manager had a sat me down and says, listen, these are the weak points in your game. If you get these in your game, you will be a top player. You will be a top, top player. Because I think at 18, everyone thought I was going to be that top player. You know, that was certainly the way I was perceived as a young player. And, and when you fall short, and, and I try, particularly with young lads now, I say, it never leaves you. What, what's happened now as a manager for me is great and it's hugely satisfying and it's, but the underachievement of the player will never go away mm. it'll always be there and, and that's something that you can't get back you can never get that back so, you know if I speak to players you know that's the message and it's more difficult at international level I think because you're not with them you, you, to get to know them it's yeah. harder to get to know them a yeah. little bit and um, I only feel with some of our lads now that I really know them I really know them you know Craig Cathcart's a bit of an example of that you know who wouldn't you maybe wouldn't speak to him on a regular basis but he's a player now that I always felt there was so much more in him and he became disillusioned with the game at Blackpool to be honest I knew that here he is now he's in the Premier League with Watford He's going to European Championships and, and, and he, he has, again, I think, a player that can have a big tournament for us as well. So I do, I think you always hear, people obviously, some players, I think, will, will be, want to be managers like the managers that they've played under. I, I don't want to be a manager, you know, but the experiences of how those managers handled me helps me, I think, then, in terms of how I deal with situations with players. It's funny because um, I think in football, neither are the majority of participants particularly good at communication and, and nor are the majority of participants particularly good at learning and then applying you do a lot you see a lot of footballers learning and standing in line of what's been mm-hmm. done to them and yeah, yeah. often to break away from that in life as well as in yeah. sport is very important indeed um, I'm not going to mention his name Jim McLean <coughs> but you're given a nice bridge into because we appreciate the people that listen to the big interview sending in questions and Frankie Connolly from Donegal has said Michael used to play with my brother Paddy Paddy Connolly at Dundee United I've always found him to be one of the most funniest the funniest most engaging and genuine guys I've ever met in football and I don't think he means his own brother (laughs) please ask Michael was Jim McLean a big influence in his management style (laughs) who was the most influential manager he ever played under um, there's a nice compliment for the big interview after that, but we won't read it out because I'm, I'm not that much of a pluff. Jim McLean. 
I remember, um, I remember Walter Smith saying to me one day, don't get Jim angry. <laughs> and Fergie saying the same. Mm-hmm. I remember Stuart Baxter, who managed Finland and South Africa, and it was at Dundee United a little while before he went south, and he said that Jim literally scared the shit out of him mm-hmm. and was a violent, raging maniac. And... He formed part of a new firm, broke the old firm, took Dundee United within inches, I think they were cheated, mm-hmm. of the European Cup final against mm-hmm. Liverpool. And um, you and he had ups and downs. Um, Frankie's question. Paddy Connolly, Jim McLean. Paddy, Paddy was a, a teammate of mine at Dundee United and, and a, still a very good friend of mine, actually. One, one of my best friends in football, to be fair. And uh, I think there was a common bond between a lot of the younger players at Dundee United because of the environment that we were in. You know, it was a very harsh environment. It was not harsh in terms of the day-to-day of being a professional footballer, of course, that's not harsh. But in terms of, you know, the level of criticism, you know, and, and, and you know, how you were treated when you, at times when you were out of the team was, was, was so harsh at times and you felt so, you never got a valid reason, you know what I mean? You just, they were just, you could just be cast aside. Sometimes you were cast aside for months. You know, it was, you know, you were totally, I was cast aside for about seven months at Dundee United where I barely played a game over a contract dispute. You know, I was in the last year, just totally cast aside. And Jim McLean, you know, he goes back to the era of the great Scottish Steen, obviously, you know, like Jim McLean was uh, our Jock Steen's assistant, I think, in the 82 World Cup, isn't that correct? I think, yeah. So, I mean, that showed the regard that Jock Steen had for Jim McLean. And Jim McLean was a genius in many ways. He was ahead of his time. You know, he always looked at every angle to try and to to, um, make things better, you know what I mean? Like, when you look back, like sports science, strength conditioning, psychology, uh, we were exposed to all of those things at Dundee United. All of them. We trained hard. We were given, you know, we were constantly um, from above. You know, you don't do enough. You don't do enough. These are too privileged. You constantly, like, you, were, you were hit with that constantly. You know what I mean? You need to do more. And, and in many ways, it was right. The, the, the only problem was the delivery of the message was always so harsh. And how it was delivered to you is that you probably, if it had been delivered with a little bit more softer touch to a little bit more empathy with you you know I know you're going through a tough time here but we can get you it was always done in such a harsh uh, way that you know players tended to drift away from it from a club point of view like Jim I mean basically as a manager you couldn't have he he, he created the perfect situation you know he had long term contracts for players the players who played in the team got the most money Mm. So we had always got that stranglehold. Like there was no one at Dundee United strolling about on big wages, not contributing. Like what you get in the modern game now. And he put that all together. You know, he he, he gave himself such a, a amount of control at the club that through the contractual situation, obviously the board situation, all of those kind of things, that basically it was his club. It was his club. And and so how he managed the players, he was answerable to no one really. In, in relation to that, you know, it wasn't as if you were in a situation say, well, I think I've been harshly treated here by the manager. I might, you know, speak to the board or whatever. That didn't exist. You just were like, you were harshly treated. Get on with it. But th- there was a lot. I've taken an awful lot out of my time at Dundee United. An awful lot. Because I felt that there was so much good in it. And it's just a shame that there was the element of bad in it. And again, 
we underachieved at Dundee United for the group of players that we had. We never won anything in those four years. Yes, we were always in the top three or four of the league, a few semi-finals, one cup final, Motherwell beat us. I think with a little bit more of a, a softer side to he was close to building a really top-class football environment there, you know, a really some, which I think, and maybe, maybe what happened was, again, the generations of players always change, like we talk about it now, you know, what, what kids are like now to what we were like as kids. But us as kids then, we were different from Hegarty, Neri, and those players that had been historically, had been fantastically successful, Bannon for Dundee United. So we were slightly different. So we were maybe less tolerant of that environment than they were at that time but they had had great success as a team as you touched on there and, and possibly as I say the difference between you know Jim McLean and Ferguson obviously locked were at loggerheads and you know Dundee United Aberdeen the new firm but Ferguson was able to change with the game and Jim McLean I think would never have been able to change with the game and, and, and how when I say change with the game change with how players were in the game rather than the game changing tactically or anything like that there but change with how, the, how players were and how, how he adapted to that and I think that I think he knew that but, and that was why he never left on the United One of the guests we had a great friend of ours Darren Fletcher on the, on the big mm. interview talked about precisely that when he was going through the, the worst experience of his life when, his, when illness was threatening to rob him not simply of his playing career, but um, the quality of quality his life, future yeah. life. Yeah. And Alex Ferguson instantly treated him like a human being, not like one of his players, not like an employee, not like a failing resource, mm-hmm. as Shankly famously did with anybody who's out of the team because of illness or injury. They just didn't exist at Liverpool. Yeah. Uh-huh. Which distances Alex Ferguson again, and, and over the years, the stereotype that you're alluding to about the, that he had equally the same capacity to instill fear or to criticise or be demanding to McLean, that hairdryer stereotype, that, that for years before his retirement, that didn't characterise how he would interact with players, the right phraseology that he would use, mm-hmm. like you did with Carl, the degree to which he could understand what might be going, in a, mm-hmm. going on in a player's head. That's, that's a fantastic skill, and I think it's why we're here uh, with you today, simply because you haven't just made your team more effective and more successful but you've clearly got under the skin of your players there's one more question to deal with which is from Warren Heyman it was a complete surprise to me Sturm Graz in Austria what was the story with them and you? (laughs) It's an interesting it's funny how things work in football and the timing of things is is crucial but when I was in the last year of my contract at Hibs I was keen to, to leave. I wanted to get back to England. The Premier League was, was, was starting, you know, or it had been three or four years in, or I wanted a new experience or something. And it was the first year of Bosman. Bosman came in at Easter. And it changed Hibbs's kind of um, view of the whole contract negotiations. You know, suddenly they're going, we might lose him now for nothing. Because I think it wasn't previously Mark McGee had been at Leicester and, and he had bid quite a substantial amount of money for me to take me south again. And Hibbs had knocked it back. I was a bit disappointed at how that had happened and, you know, I, I kind of wanted that opportunity. But ironically, I was a Bosman in Europe, but I wasn't a Bosman in the UK because it took another year. It did. So, for instance, I couldn't go to a Premier League club for nothing, but I could go to an Austrian team or a French. So I spoke to three teams. One, one was uh, a Swiss team, uh, St. Gallen, oh, yeah. another team, uh, Gengon in, in France, and I spoke to Sturm Graz. And uh, the Sturm Graz one was the one that, that really appealed because they were an ambitious club. They had a good financial model. It had come off the back of we had played Austria 
in the last European qualification game in, in Belfast and I had I had scored two on the night and the game actually knocked Austria out of the, the chance to go to the Euros in, in 96. So they had remembered that game. and uh, But it, it, it broke down at the last minute because the coach was a Yugoslavian and he had a Yugoslavian player that he wanted. You know, so there was a bit, and it kind of stalled a little bit. And in the period of it stalling, Coventry came in, and it was Gordon Strachan that had come in, Ron Atkinson was the manager, but Gordon was being obviously groomed to take the job, and I think he was already sort of operating in terms of bringing players in. He seized on the opportunity and, and probably got me out of Hibs for you know, less money, because Hibs will turn up maybe, well, if he goes to Austria, we're going to get nothing. nothing. If he goes to Coventry, we're at least going to get something uh, decent. So that's kind of how it happened, really, and uh, you know, I, went, I went south. But it's one of those things, again, that I, I often wish that I'd taken up the opportunity to go abroad, I definitely think. The spirit of adventure, if nothing yeah, else, the discovery. To, yeah, totally, exactly. And, and to experience a different, a different culture, a different language, and, and a different way in, in how football is, I suppose, what it means in a country as well. What, what part does football play in society in that country the same way as what we see it, you know, here? Well, on that basis, Uruguay and Chile had a big impact on you over and above what it did for your players and the results. So when we talked in Barcelona a couple of weeks ago, I think we shared an understanding that maybe, for example, in Uruguay, compared to Santiago and Chile, you could see something that would at least begin to explain Luis Suarez. Mm. And I remember on television at the time of the Liverpool incidents, the bitings, you just instinctively felt that we there was a degree of mm, maybe hysteria, maybe yeah. slight overreaction, but it wasn't a popular position that you took. It was an instinctive, no. honest one. Yeah. But then going to his country showed you something, right? Yeah, oh, definitely. Well, it was in the World Cup, in 2014 World Cup, and the, the Chilini incident was, was the main one. And uh, I had been to Uruguay. I had actually visited FC Nacional, Suarez's first club. And the people there were great, great people. You could just tell. Total football people. They explained, you know, Suarez's background and how he had come to the club as, a, I think, a 14-year-old or something like that there. And he had been, like, basically doing anything, you know, like, selling bottles or whatever he'd been doing to, to, to try and have some sort of income and he'd come from quite a big family and, and that type of thing and he lived under the stand basically which they had rooms under the stand and they said this is where Suarez stayed and there were no longer rooms I just sort of thought you know the one thing you know that I felt the environment of and the Uruguayan players I think we all know they're tough you know what I mean that they're, they're resilient you know for a country of that size of three and a half million people to consistently what it's done in world football at World Cups, I, I think is enormous. And they're not blessed with huge facilities. You know, we're in a situation here now in, in the UK where like every pitch has to be like a snooker table. Every, you know, everything has to be perfect. There has to be an ice bath after the game. It, it, Uruguay doesn't have that. It doesn't have that level of investment in the game. It doesn't have the financial resource to do it. Yet it continually produces you know, it's got two of the best strikers in the world in Cavani and, and Suarez. You know, Diego Forlan, great players I think when you go and visit, you kind of see what makes a player maybe what he is, you know, the environment he's come from. You can't condone, obviously, the bite, but I thought there was mass hysteria to it. I, I genuinely did. I thought that, like, you know, no player's career's ever been finished due to a bite. <laughs> and it's more liable to damage himself as opposed to anything else. Maybe because he was a Liverpool player as well. You know, I had a bit of an empathy with him. But... I voted. It's funny, you know. It's one of the privileges you get as a national team coach. Obviously, is you vote in the Ballon d'Or. Yeah. And I voted for Suarez uh, last season because I felt that 
you know, he went from a season of he missed the opening part of the season through the suspension, and, and, and uh, you know, Barcelona had to take that on, had to take that liability on with him. Yet ultimately, by the end of the season, he had scored the winning goal in the Champions League final, and I thought his rehabilitation again was worthy of, of that. Listen. Ronaldo and Messi are, as we know, are on, on, on a different planet. But sometimes it takes other things that, you know, there's other qualities you have to look for in a player. And I think that, you know, you, know, you touched on it when, when we met a few weeks in, in Barcelona uh, a few weeks ago. You said, like, Suarez has been a huge positive within Barcelona. And, and he is, I think, a player that when he's in your team, the other players all respond to him. And that's a great quality to have, you know. It was an education for me because, you know, I, I wouldn't like to call myself hysterical, but more than the biting, and this is not the incident that you were to, to talking about and trying to talk down, but during the Ever incident, I, I got my high horse. I thought he was wrong and I couldn't believe that he got support from his squad for it. But then maybe that tells you something about not having been in a professional dressing room, not mm-hmm. having trained and worked with people every day in my mm-hmm. part and therefore when, when he came to Barcelona the guys who ghost wrote his autobiography with him, Pete Jensen and Sid Lowe said to me, you'll change your mind and while you and, and your squad were in Montevideo I think um, Suarez didn't play against you because he was in physical rehab yeah. from a late knee ligament injury that he'd, he'd taken from Liverpool to try and get ready for the World Cup and they said to me that even though they were helping ghostwrite his autobiography, they couldn't get near him because he was working out at least twice a day and then getting physiotherapy. And therefore, he was just like, listen, my book will have to wait. This is, it's everything to me to play in the World Cup. And when he got to Barcelona, you, you're right, the, the players around him were saying that the, the daily intensity, every minute of every training session mattered to him intensely, mm. matched what Luis Enrique was trying. And it's not as if they, it was like a cattle prod to them and they, no. they were hardly on their sun loungers themselves but it did add a level of demand and a level of I want this do you want this as much as me and they embraced him they loved it and, and it, I was very surprised he wasn't in the top three you wouldn't see Ronaldo right now outside a top three but to me there was no question that it was some order of Messi Neymar Suarez last season redemption I think is a big theme in sport and in life and mm. you can find another path after you've been a little bit lost so yeah. you know without saying that I can rid myself completely of, the, of his behaviour and the everything I would say that if you're born with very little and you're living under a stand you've got nothing and you're fighting you can do things that you might regret at another time of course um, a different character but a man who was good to you and initially went to we've talked about and Damien Duff again mm. talked a lot about being a kid abroad from Ireland at Blackburn Rovers and suffering and wanting to go home and Kenny Douglas saying to Tim Sherwood, go and rescue that guy, go and make sure that he stays and talk to his parents and say, whatever. I think that one of the guys that when you got to Newcastle age 17, 18, mm-hmm. pretty much straight out of school, yeah, yeah. that Gaza was yeah. very positive to yeah. be around for you as, a, mm-hmm. as an individual, not just a great player yeah. to watch. It terrified me, first of all, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> probably because I'd come from school, but... Darren Jackson was there at the time as well and Darren, Darren had come down from Scotland he was two or three years older and Darren was three years older than me and Gaza was so 21, yeah there was about three years between me and Darren about just over two and a bit between myself and Paul and they were tight and uh, I think it was probably initially Darren because Darren had come from Meadowbank at the time to go to Newcastle and he kind of understood me because I was coming from Corey and it was a similar sort of scenario, coming essentially at part-time football in a club like Newcastle. And he had adapted very well to it. You know, him, him and Paul, 
they included me straight away. That was the biggest thing, you know. They, they, at times, you know, I would have been the brunt of the humour. There was a price to pay for it. Yeah, there was a price. <laughs> and, and maybe at the time I wasn't, you know, I, I, I could never, maybe at times didn't always get my head around that. But that inclusiveness for a footballer is huge, I think. It's a huge thing to find that you are part of it, that you're included, that you're not sitting there thinking, oh, I'm dreading going to the dressing room this morning, or I'm dreading, you know, what, what's, you know how, how I am perceived in the group, or, or am I part of the group? And probably, you know, not long after I went to Newcastle, we, we, were, we had a free weekend for some reason, and we, we were taken away to Benidorm, and, and we did a bit of training and stuff. And it was a big thing, that week was huge for me, because I, I had never even been away as a kid, I'd never been on like a boys' holiday or something. So going away at that age with men, as I perceived them, that was terrifying as well. Full of risk. Yeah, and and how? But again, it was it was a huge thing for me. And, and and Paul had a way where he was very demanding, right? And he could fly off the handle in training, or he could, you know, he could give you a mouthful on the pitch. And I remember in my debut, I made my debut against Charlton. The chemistry between me and him on the pitch wasn't great at that time. He was looking to play little things around the corner and I was running in behind. And it was kind of making him look bad, I suppose, in a way. And he was, you know, giving me a lot of verbals during the game and I pretty much just took it. And maybe once or twice I would have chipped back. But when we came in on the Monday, and I hadn't seen it, he came in on the Monday and he, put, he, says, he says, I'm sorry. He says, I shouldn't have done that. He says, I've been thinking about it all weekend. You came in, you were involved in, in setting up the equaliser. He says just when you go on that pitch take the ball he says make sure you take the ball and you know no one can ever accuse Paul of never taking the ball on the pitch you know the responsibility took on the pitch yeah, the was, opposite. Yeah. it was totally the opposite and it stuck with me really it always did stick with me in my mind to say well actually I want it to be that type of player I want it to be that, to be able to take that responsibility that he took but it meant a lot that he would come to me that day and say, listen, I'm sorry. And, and, and our relationship probably then, then grew from that. And I hadn't seen him for years, and it was funny. We were at Tottenham in the Europa League when I was at Shamrock Rovers, and just by coincidence, he was at the game. And he had waited for me after the game, and it was really nice, nice to see him again, you know. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com He thought you could play. That was yeah. The thing. I think yeah. I mean, in those days, initially, even though I mean he was a he was a fabulous footballer even then, but I suppose he was still he was still making his way, mm. and, and it's not as if he had bags of experience. But he saw a player and told you so, and and mm. uh, you had thirteen or fourteen, twelve or thirteen goals in mm-hmm. in only twenty two games at Newcastle, out of an decent side at that mm-hmm. stage, and to be told that you could play. Yeah, I mean, but a oh, fella like that. Oh, totally. When you're a young player like that, you know, when you get that level of, I suppose, uh, 
it's like approval, really, isn't it? You know, what I mean, it's it's like a, it's a level of approval that you know you respond to that, and uh, you know it did it gave me confidence and belief, and I had a great first season. And maybe Paul leaving was the wrong thing for me because I think then the expectation on me was greater than the next season. The team wasn't as strong equally. You know, we we tried to replace him. It was a little bit like a modern day. I suppose Suarez's situation when he left Liverpool where they tried to compensate for the look. You can't replace the one player, so you, you bring in four or five players. That's what we, we did at Newcastle and, and it didn't work. Mm. You know, and we, we subsequently were relegated. But probably, you know, him staying and being in the team would have helped me certainly in the second season as well. What has been the... I'm thinking about personality here. What has been the idea about bringing, occasionally bringing Carl Frampton and Gary Lightbody into, mm-hmm. into squad... Groups, what's the? I just think that I wanted the players to. Uh, there's always a risk to these things, you know what I mean? You always think as a manager, like, if this goes flat here, it's, you know what I mean? It's, it's not going to look particularly good. And uh, Carl came in and, and uh, he, had, he knew one or two of the lads anyway. But the, the great thing for me was the response of the players to him. The players were like, Frampton, you know what I mean? It was, it was, a, it was a big thing. They were all like, they're all getting their pictures taken, all of that Fantastic, kind of thing, you know, yeah. th- th- those types of little things. He was the same. Like, he was like, can you get Steve? He, he had a shirt. She's, can you get Steve in the sign that shirt? So I was like, yeah, we'll get Steve, no problem. We watched the fight together. We all sat around the TV. We watched his fight, as, as, and, uh, and then they did a Q&A. We did a Q&A with him. And I think it's very important for them to understand what sacrifices he had made to get to where he was. And I think it means more when it's someone from Northern Ireland, you know, as opposed to bringing in someone else. These are the sacrifices that... He's your own. He's, he's, he's you. Yeah, he's you, and this is what he's got to. And, you know, I think the players... And it was good for him, because he was actually subsequently... I didn't realise this, but on, on Football Focus, they had, like, a celebrity interviewer. And he was the interviewer on the... So, and he had a, it was a bit of an icebreaker for him with the, with the boys as well, and it was good. And, you know, when you saw it, I think, when, when he, in his last fight in Manchester, like, there was loads of lads there, and it's just a good thing, you know. The Gary Lightbody one was good because he's a huge Northern Ireland Snow fan. Patrol. Yes, yeah, Snow Let's Patrol. Let's for Emery doesn't know. He doesn't know. Counted, I, man. I, I, I'm not a huge music fan, but he got him... We got him, and he says, listen, we have to get him to sing. Yeah. We weren't sure whether he, he would sing on his own. I didn't know whether he could sing acoustically, just or whether, you know, it's, you've always seen him with the band. But he came in and he did a wee bit. Of, we, he, he, we put him in the warm-up and then he did a bit of crossing and finishing towards the end with the lads. <laughs> and he doesn't look like a footballer, to be fair. But he made his day. It, yeah, really, it was the Northern Ireland manager <laughs> who said that, not me. And uh, he was uh, just a really good lad. Just, again, so you go... And the reaction of the players to him, he sang for us. The lads were all videoing it on their phones. And, and, and I just think it's nice to sort of... He actually says, guys, you have no idea what it will mean if we can qualify. And when, when people like that say it, it, it resonates so much more, I think, as well. You know, So between now and the summer, are we, we've one or two that we're, we're hoping. Oh, we're hoping we can get Rory in, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Rory McIlroy. Fanatical United man, I think, isn't he? Yeah, and so I'm, it's a tough ask for a Liverpool man. Yeah, it is. It is, uh, but <laughs> we'll we'll overlook that. But uh, yeah, he was at the game, the Greece game, for example, and, and I know he he thought the experience was fantastic. The atmosphere in the stadium that night was brilliant, and um, so one or two others. You know what I mean? I, I, I'd love to get AP McCoy in, for example, just because the level of sacrifice that these guys go to. It's important, you know, sometimes, you know, I always think 
And maybe that goes back to the Jim McLean situation because McLean used to have these meetings and you'd go away from the meetings always questioning yourself, I'm not doing enough. He always had that. T- so, you know, whether, you know, you sit in front of an AP McCoy or Rory McIlroy, they tell you their story, you ask them questions, you know, you, you know, a, a card front then. You know, and Carla said to the lad, I didn't want to start it. I wasn't living right. I wasn't doing enough to give me a chance to be where I am now. And he said, light bulb went off his head one day. No, I'm going to stop doing that. This is what I'm going to do. And, and you know, you can see the players were hanging on his every word, you know. And, and if they take that away individually, hopefully they'll benefit from that. But, you know, if you can harness that into the group as well. So you made me go back to where you started and that you inherited players who through no great fault of their own were in a rut. And if they could never have sat down and articulated that they felt like losers or that they felt that they were doomed to lose for the national team, mm. that's possibly what was in the back of their, their brain. Having been the player whisperer for them and, and brought them to a new level of success, you're now not just saying to them, look what AP did or look what this, this world champion fighter or this world famous pop star did. You're making them feel that you believe your players are in that ilk. Subliminally, they're going, the manager thinks we can be like them. We're, we're, we're like and like. We're in company. Yeah. It's a really strong message for a guy who's maybe trying to use Northern Ireland and his, his appearances there to, to punch his way out of Division 1 or yeah. out of the Championship to the Premier League. You're showing your own players something very powerful there about what you think of them. I, I think. think. I, I, well, yeah, I think so. I'm, I mean, I, I've just always looked at any type of things as... Will it, will it be a positive? And, and even sometimes, more so, if it's not going to be a positive, will it be a negative? You know, and, and it's obviously nothing I ever would. So the risk in doing it and, and, and captivating and, and, and getting the players isn't that high. And, and, you know, it's funny, I spoke to... I was at a dinner recently in London and, and I spoke to Paul McGinley. I said, like, I loved... I'd, I'd seen the programme and I'd love what he'd done with the Ryder Cup team and how... And, and, and he said, you know, he talked about some of the things that he'd done and, and he says, you have to get into their heart before you get into their head. And it's so true, really. It's so true that, yeah, we, we had to give the players back the passion to play for Northern Ireland again. They had to find... Well, not that we had to give it. They had to find it again as a better way. I, I, I don't have that part to give it to them. But they, they had to find it again. That, that's something that would give me as much pleasure out of qualification as anything as that we now have a group of players and hopefully a group of players to come and, and because of what this group of players have done that you know it, it feeds down through the generations of players that have a, a huge passion that want to play for Northern Ireland you know and, and that's as I say for me that's, that's the biggest positive of the lot For fishing three themes the first is an easy one, um, because I know we both agree on the subject. Tony Evans mm-hmm. should be playing Champions League football. 100% respect to Tony Pulis from West, West Brom, mm-hmm. and I hope they excel for as long as they're together. But until West Brom is playing Champions League football, mm-hmm. my personal opinion is that Tony Evans probably should be using West Brom as a, as a place to find a, a bigger club, because he is, I, I think he's deeply undervalued, underrated as a, as a defender, as a as an individual footballer, as an athlete, as a leader, and somebody who can give things to a group beyond what he does with the ball. Mm, mm-hmm. Are you of the same opinion? Yeah, certainly. Johnny's clever. He's intelligent, not just in terms of his football ability, but he's, he's intelligent about how he lives his life. and you know, he, he's, he's interested in learning, it's very, which I think is not that common in the market because this generation of players, they're never going to have to 
test themselves in terms of earning a living outside of football. So, you know, if you've got that level of security and that level of finance, you know, why bother? But Johnny's interested in learning, which I, which I think, which makes him interesting to me. I, I like that. Um, I was surprised that, you know, when, when he became available, that perhaps, again, without being disrespectful, it was that bigger clubs or bigger perceived clubs in the Premier League didn't, weren't, weren't uh, after Johnny. Yeah, me too. No yeah, question. I, I genuinely was. I mean, I, I looked at... Now, I know he'd had injuries and whether that put people off. I'm not, I'm not sure if that was what it was. But I always remember we played in Porto against Portugal and it was uh, Cristiano Ronaldo's 100th cap. And it was all set up. Full house, 45,000. It was a wet night. You know, they had Luis Figo was there to, to present the cap to Ronaldo. And we were there. We were wheeled in. Lambs to the slaughter. Lambs to the slaughter. <laughs> and, you know, everyone played great that night. But Johnny Evans was phenomenal that night in terms of the level of his performance. Not only, like, he was involved, he set our goal up. He stepped in, won the ball, played a great pass to Kyle. Kyle did great sets out for Niall McGinn. And we're leading the game 1-0. And we led to the 81st minute, and we just we we lost a, a, an equaliser in the last uh, eight or nine minutes of the game. But his level of performance that you night—you're saying he rose to the occasion as well as his ability, aren't you? Yeah, but his, his, his leadership that night was phenomenal. I just remember, but it, the quality of his play and the way the game is now, where mo- mobility, I think, is almost the biggest thing for a, a centre back because the game's less. There's less contact now, so you have to be able to move, you have to be able to read the game, you have to be able to play like that. I'd love to see him get the opportunity to play abroad because I really think that you watch Spanish football and you look at how some of the teams play and how, for example, they'll play, they're happy to defend 2v2. Johnny defended like man for man a lot at Manchester United when he played. And, uh, you know, it's a big summer for him. You know, I think, again, you talk about the impacts of certain players in the tournament, the stages they're at in their career, and Kyle obviously comes into that category, and a lot of the younger ones come into that category. But, you know, it, it, it could be a massive tournament for Johnny as well because he will get that chance to demonstrate, which obviously both of us believe that I know, do. He, he can play at the top, the, 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 the highest, highest level of the game. I'm glad to have that vindicated by a man who knows more about football than me. The, the, the penultimate one, then, is you, you talked about reawakening the passion in the players and recalibrating them you've almost done a reset on some of them you've certainly done a reset on the performance the points you've won a group during a tournament you refer to it a lot as the national stadium mm-hmm. rather than Windsor Park mm-hmm. I don't know if that's a sociological political thing it's, it's been a difficult place in the past yeah. I remember talking to Terry Gibson who was coaching with Laurie Sanchez when mm-hmm. Northern Ireland beat Spain mm-hmm. in 2006 I think yes. and he talked about it being there was a moat I don't know if there is then it yeah. was hostile it was basic Yeah. I want to say when was your first experience of Windsor Park as a punter as a fan yeah. as a player what do you need to do is the public different already are they, are they with you or do they remain to fall under your spell no I think yeah, my first experience of, of Windsor Park and, and the, the official title of it now is the National Stadium at Windsor Park. I, I, it's just so long winded. I just call it the National. Or okay. sometimes I'll call it Windsor Park. To be honest, okay. it's, it's uh, and, and like anything, there's you know probably going to be naming rights and whatever with with all these these uh, new venues. But uh, my first experience of going going to Windsor Park was I remember my dad taking me up to watch Northern Ireland for, play England and they uh, beat five one. Paul Marner and Tony Woodcock scored uh, two each, I think, for, for England on the day. And England were very good. I think Trevor Francis played. And, it might be a Ron Greenwood side, was it? Probably, Maybe. yeah, it was. It must have they been. They could play. They had, yeah. they, had, they had 
30 really good international yeah. players in that era. They had, they had yeah, to pick from just like that, no matter who was yeah, there. Totally, and I remember, think, I think actually, Mike Mills might have been playing it right back, that era of players anyway. Yeah. And uh, So that was my real first experience. And Windsor Park would have, because at the time, you know, it's Linfield's home ground, you know, it wasn't a place where Catholics would have gone. Let's, you know, and that's, you know, wouldn't, you know, and so for my dad to bring me there would have been quite a big thing for mm-hmm. him to do, to be fair, you know, and, and uh, to feel that comfortable doing that. I'm not sure really. The next time I would have been there would have been probably playing for Corian against Linfield, and it could be quite a hostile environment in those days. It's been one of those places which I think it, it has been, and at times probably unfairly, uh, at times seen as an air, as a sectarian kind of venue obviously you know like the Northern Ireland team the Catholics you know wouldn't come and support them because the you know Windsor Park was a big part of that and, and how Catholics perceive it in particular my hope is that that I, I don't believe that so many barriers have been broken down you know the IFA have done a magnificent job of that you know the, 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 the atmosphere in the stadium is so positive I think that we have a team certainly that represents both sides of the community um, and, and I don't feel that we've never not had that to be fair even when I played we always had that to be fair although I did play you know at times I remember Anton Rogan getting abused because he was a Celtic player yes. Neil didn't get abused really so but it was only when he went to Celtic and, and, and you know from having been at Leicester that you know the issues happened when he came and played for Northern Ireland where it went just completely beyond the bounds of acceptability uh, uh, totally under yeah. any circumstance uh, under any you know just and but now, you know, what I see is, is a vibrant, modern stadium. Northern Ireland shirts everywhere. You know, a shirt that is there for, for Northern Ireland. It doesn't represent one side of the community, it represents both sides of the community. You know, what, what I want to see is that those last remaining barriers that perhaps people, you know, who still feel that that's, you know, reluctant or, you know, anxiety about going to Windsor Park, that they won't feel that. We can eradicate that. That, that, that we can eradicate There's that. There's a wonderful feeling. And then I close on something I was going to ask you about, but it's patently a passion. Liverpool mm. Football Club. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm really taken by it. Um, how, did they, how did they do in Europe the other night? They won the uh, Dortmund game, yeah, they won. Mm. Yeah, it was fantastic. What the hell was that? It's phenomenal, wasn't Football, it? Football, bloody hell, eh? Yeah, it was, it was, it was phenomenal. It was like... It's still special. Just for the record, the Northern Ireland manager is <laughs> smiling very broadly indeed. <laughs> yeah, Liverpool was just... You know, when I grew up, Liverpool... I, I was a Liverpool fanatic. Why? I don't really know, to be honest. You know, I, I look back and think, why did they become my team? And they were my team from such a young age. You know, going back to Keegan, maybe Keegan and Toshak. And then I was devastated when Keegan left. And then... You know, they brought down Dalgleish, who I didn't know an awful lot about. But my dad had a friend who was a big Celtic fan, Martin Hanyu. He was a tax inspector in Glasgow. And he says, listen, Dalgleish. And he brought me, he used to bring me things when he came over. And he'd bring me pictures of Dalgleish playing for Celtic and stuff. And um, I remember when Dalgleish came and, and then, you know, I was just in awe of Dalgleish. Keegan was forgotten about quickly, <laughs> so he was. And, uh, but, yeah, and I, I suppose when you grow up, you know, as a kid to watch football Liverpool give you the magical nights Anfield you know I remember them playing in the, winning the UEFA Cup coming from behind to beat St Etienne I think going back to sports night I remember that game vividly being on sports night and I remember you know those big games the European Cup finals winning the leagues the players that came down you know the sticker books all of the kind of things that you know are coming back it's nice to see that for the Euros the sticker books are back and that kind of thing 
And, and it just always was a, was a huge, huge passion of mine, Liverpool. I never, as I say, got to see them play in, in the flesh. I never got to see any of those, the, the, those teams play. But uh, it's always stuck with me, and you, always, you never lose it. Like, like, I wouldn't claim to be any sort of big Liverpool fan now. I love to see them do well, you know, first of all. But I, like, anything, like all of the teams, Manchester United, you know, so I, I, I like to see the English teams all do well. You played there. At Anfield. You played at Anfield. Yeah, Anfield. yeah, a couple of times, yeah. We won there, actually. Yeah, I was going to say... We won, with yeah. Coventry? No, with, with, with Newcastle. With Newcastle? Yeah, we How won. How did that go? It was, we were 1-0 up, actually. We, John Henry scored. I, I set the goal up, and then they equalised, and that was a really good team. It was, that team was about 88, 89. Beardsley. Kenny O'Gleish was the manager. It was Beardsley, Barnes, uh, Ray Houghton. Steve McMahon maybe was playing in midfield. Steve Nicholl. I was playing against Steve Nicholl. I remember that. I think Hansen was still playing, actually, as well. We took a bit of a beating in the second half, but we hung in and we defended it, and, and we got a penalty with uh, five minutes to go. And uh, Mirandinha, who was the only Brazilian in, in English football at the time, strode up and cool as you like. It was a modern penalty, actually, because he waited for the goalkeeper and he just rolled it in the other side, and we won 2-1. And it was, a, it was a great feeling, actually, you know, it was great. But even now, like, I still think there's something... It, it's still... You know, one of the luxuries you get as an international manager is you get to go and watch games, and you know you're in these fabulous stadiums and watching top-class football. But like one of the best atmospheres I was at in, in recent times was um, was Liverpool versus Bolton in the FA Cup, and Neil Lennon was the manager at Bolton, and, and I had gone. There was a player at Bolton that I was watching, and um, I had gone earlier in the day to Blackburn versus Swansea in the FA Cup, and what you see with the FA Cup now is you know. Grounds are fifty percent populated. Mm. If, if you're lucky, mm. not a great atmosphere. You know, season tickets. Anfield was rammed. You know, it was a, it was a later kickoff in the day. Bolton brought a good six eight thousand fans with them, and the atmosphere was spectacular. It's great. It was nil nil. The game was actually nil nil, but it was a great nil nil. You know, and and the, the atmosphere was 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 pretty special. You know, and it's something that probably. You know, we've lost a little bit in, in a lot of the big grounds now. Took you back to Sports Night and David Coleman and... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and one day? One day, maybe? <laughs> no, <laughs> look, you know, you prepare, talented, you plan. Let's leave the first man to take Northern Ireland to a tournament since 1986 mm. in charge of his country for a little while mm. longer. But what, what will happen is that as your abilities are clearer, as your successes go, people will try to place you at... Celtic mm. undoubtedly people will look at um, should you be in charge of a Premier League club and at some stage given that you're still a very young man mm-hmm. at some stage presumably daily work will appeal to you mm-hmm. I, th- I think that's probably inevi- inevitable mm-hmm. and therefore if you have to plan for success what, why not plan for one day Michael O'Neill Liverpool manager <laughs> it's funny it's, I think it, football now is so it's so difficult to plan I think it's, it is the nature like I often you know on it you know, I know Brendan well, and I was gutted when he, he lost the job because I think, you know, in, in many ways he'd done so many good things. You know, I, I definitely think he'd done so many good things, and the chance to, you know, it came so soon. Like you, you never get that. You never know when you're going to get that opportunity. Like I didn't, in the grand scheme of things, I didn't expect to be the manager of my country at 42. It's not, you know, at the time I think I was the third youngest head coach in Europe. You don't, but the opportunity presented itself. I took it. And we are where we are now. And so, you know, all of those things would be lovely if they happen. But, you know, it's one of those things. If, if, the, if the opportunity presents itself and it's presented to me, of course, it would be a phenomenal experience to go through that. But time will tell. 
Well, the Euro has got a lot to give you all. Kyle Lafferty, man of the tournament, scorer of the tournament. <laughs> Big Champions League move for Johnny Evans and uh, the first rung on the ladder to Anfield supremacy for <laughs> Michael O'Neill. I used the phrase the player whisperer earlier on. I wasn't being facetious. Fantastic to feel the articulacy and communication and sense of enjoyment of football that your players are benefiting from. Privilege and a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us in the big interview. Thank you very much. Thank you. Magical. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.